listeners, it's PJ Frightful here again. Whew, this was a tough episode to prepare for. There were so many ghastly tales of terror that I considered to scare you out of your skin. The first story I thought of was about Anna Lorenzo, a young girl in Southern California whose family is terrorized by the evil ice monsters who eventually capture Anna's father and drag him away. But that wasn't scary enough, so I thought of Dan Irving, a pre-op transgender living in the far future of 2019, where people like Dan are tortured and electrocuted because of their sexual identity. No, not that one. Maybe the one about Fatima al-Sabani, who is returning to America with the cure for cancer, when all of a sudden, her plane slams into an invisible wall. Or maybe I thought I'd just go with the tried-and-true classic story of the woman stalked by a mutant pumpkin that keeps trying to grab her But none of these stories felt right for today. Because today is the one-month anniversary of the inauguration of President Donald J. Trump. Life is already nightmarish. I can't think of any story scarier than what we're living in right now. Maybe Ryan and his new guest can think of something. Let's find out. Welcome to another scary episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. I'm Ryan Daly, and my guest this time is a new voice to the Fire and Water Network. He wrote to me a couple of weeks ago with an idea for an episode that I simply could not pass up. So please welcome my new guest, Mr. Scott X. How are you, Scott? I'm doing great, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you very much for being on the show with us. And you are here because you came to me with a very interesting topic and theme that I latched onto and thought it was timely and interesting. But we can't say what that topic is without spoiling the end of the story we're going to cover. So we're changing up the order of things a little bit on this episode, folks. We are going to take our promo break right now. I know we haven't given Scott much of an introduction, (laughs) but it will make sense a little bit later. After the break, we'll take you through the story that is called The Crimson Claw. And after we get past the spoiler, we'll be able to talk about the big idea and why Scott had to be my guest on this episode. Does that sound okay to you, Scott? Sounds great. Thanks, Ryan. All right, folks, do not go away. Oh, adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. walking across, and, and you know what? Men, too. Well, uh, 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 Stella? men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa, they're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy, um, indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, 
we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, required reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. The Crimson Claw is written by Leo Dorfman, penciled by George Tuska, inked by Nick Carty, and edited by Murray Boltonoff. The story first appeared in issue 4 of Ghosts, cover dated March-April 1972, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the on-sale date was January 4th that year. This story has also been reprinted in Showcase Presents Ghosts Volume 1 and the Ghosts Treasury Edition, Limited Collector's Edition C32. On an eerie day in 1839, a mother sits playing with Johnny, her young child, as he sits on her lap. A fire blazes in the fireplace. Admiring her child, she wonders aloud what great deeds the young boy's hands may someday perform. Then, something happens. She sees the boy's hand morph into a crimson, demon-like claw. The mother screams out in horror and passes out. Her terror-induced cries brought her daughter Asia running. The frightened mother regains her senses and inquires as to whether her daughter had seen the beastly claw. Asia replied that she had seen nothing wrong with Johnny's hand. The mother tells her daughter it must have been a dream, a nightmare, but she wonders to herself if perhaps what she had seen was an awful omen. Years passed and Johnny grows to boyhood, joining in activities just like all the other children. Halloween is near and the young boy comes up with a costume that he believes will, in his words, scare people half to death. He dons his costume and knocks on the door of his own home to start his trick-or-treating for the night and to see how well his costume would work. His sister Asia opens the door to a shout of trick-or-treat. She immediately recognizes her brother's voice and pretends to be frightened by the little ghoul. As she reaches out to place a piece of candy in her young brother's hand, she suddenly sees the hand morph into that demon-like claw. She screams aloud about seeing the monstrous hand. John is confused and asks, what are you yelling about, Asia? There's nothing wrong with my hand. Asia looks down and sees a perfectly normal hand. She tells her brother she must have imagined it, but she knows what she saw. And like her mother before her, she can't help but wonder what it could possibly mean. Several more years pass, and we see John and a schoolmate attending a carnival. The friend tells John that this carnival has a gypsy who tells fortunes. John scoffs at the idea of anyone being able to tell the future. But apparently, the lure of a hint at what the future may hold for him was just too much for young John to resist. The withered old crone tells him, It's the worst poem I ever read. The lines say you'll live hard and die young, but your name will go down in history. John exclaims that she is spouting foolishness. At the same moment, the gypsy spies his hand turn once again into the crimson talon-like claw, and she cries out in surprise and fear. But this time, John himself witnesses the transformation. 
he runs out of the fortune teller's tent, thinking to himself that it was all an hallucination, and decides that he has nothing to worry about anyway. The old woman had told him he would go down in history. We get our last glimpse of young John as he walks up behind a seated man and fires a bullet into the back of that man's head. You see, the date is now April 14th, 1865. The location is Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. The victim of the shooting is Abraham Lincoln, and the young man is none other than John Wilkes Booth, the first American presidential assassin. It seems that the hideous, dreadful claw had fatefully foretold his bloody deed. Now, do you believe in the supernatural? Alright, that was the Crimson Claw, and we can now reveal that the idea Scott originally brought to me was covering a story about the death of Abraham Lincoln. And I jumped on it, and I don't know why, but for some reason, the idea of a presidential assassination sounded really exciting to me for some reason. Uh, And because today, if you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, is President's Day in the United States, a day when we honor the birthday of our first president, George Washington, as well as all of the other presidents that have come after him, no matter who they are or what minority groups they may try to oppress. But anyway, we will pick this story apart in a minute. But first, Scott, what is your connection to this particular subject matter? Basically, why did you want to talk about a ghost or supernatural story involving Abraham Lincoln? Well, it's sort of an interesting thing, or at least interesting to me. I've been a history buff my whole life. I've been a comic collector my whole life, as long as I can remember. And I guess I've started over the last couple of years, I've really gotten more involved in history, just sort of as something to keep my mind active and interested. And I started doing talks about Civil War era history, President Lincoln. And I, I gave a couple talks in 2015 around the, assass- or the anniversary of the assassination. I had some people that had listened to my talk, and they recommended me to teach to a guy who runs an adult education class. And this guy asked me to teach a class on the Lincoln assassination, which, oh, that's pretty cool. Well, I had to fill eight hours uh, worth of time. (laughs) So I'm thinking, oh, that's maybe not so cool. How do I do this? And as as it turns out, as with most things, it was really easy to fill the time. But I asked a friend of mine who was a teacher who was actually a biographer of John Wilkes Booth. I asked him, you know, what would he, did he have any suggestions that I could use as far as teaching this class? And he said, well, you know, kind of make it entertaining. So he, he recommended that I get some movie clips. So old time movies, movies that had the Lincoln assassination depicted in it. Oh, that's pretty cool. So I found some silent movies on YouTube and, you know, we see all these goofy actors and over-dramatizing everything. And I thought, oh, this is really fun. So I thought, well, what else can I do? I don't want to do just movie clips. So I went on YouTube again and there's a song called When Booth Shot Lincoln. So I found that and threw it in there. And then I thought, hey, my comic book collection, I've collected comics. Part of my collection is comics where Lincoln appeared. So I pulled them out and started looking through them again. I hadn't looked at them for a while. And there was lots of cool stuff on the assassination. So I thought, wow, there's a lot of rich stuff in here. And at the time, I I attend a, a conference on the Lincoln assassination every year in Maryland. And so one of the people who organized the conference and I had been talking for a while about doing a talk and I thought this is a this is would be a great talk. So I pitched a talk called The Plots to Kill Lincoln or The Lincoln Assassination Story, Depictions of the Plot to Kill Lincoln in American Comic Books and Graphic Novels. And they accepted my pitch. So I thought, oh that's great. Now I gotta try it out to make sure it's not really crappy. So <laughs> I took I took I found an old Superboy comic um, that had the Lincoln assassination depicted and I, I want to say it was Superboy number eighty five. Superboy goes back in time and tries to stop Lincoln's assassination, which, of course, all goes awry. Lex Luthor shows up. You can imagine a 1960s Superboy story with the Lincoln assassination in 
it. Sure. But it was a huge hit. The class just absolutely loved it. We had a riot kind of talking about the story. And so then as I've been going through more and more of my comics and weeding out, I shouldn't say weeding out, but editing which things I'm going to have time to talk about, which ones I didn't. And I found several of them that were in the horror type comics. And that was right about the time you started It's Midnight, this podcast, the, the podcasting hour. And I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. This kind of could fit right in with what you're doing. And then I kind of sat down and just wrote you an email and thought, hey, maybe if you're interested, this would be kind of a fun thing to talk about. Yeah. For those of you listening, when Scott wrote to me, he had a list of like six different comics with Abraham Lincoln or his murder or his ghost in some fashion. Um, I left to this one, The Crimson Claw, because I remembered it most vividly. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about some of the other stories on your list? Uh, not going into full descriptions, just kind of in brief, what are those stories about and where can they be found? Yeah, um, let's see. I have the first ones I had was in Ghosts Number 1, which basically was just a kind of a one-page little thing, the very first splash page. I mean, it just talks about he had a dream, supposedly, that foretold his own funeral. So that was sort of a ghostly thing that he had this dream about he was walking through the White House and um, there was a coffin there and he asked, who is this funeral for? And they said, it's for the president. He was killed or he died. And Lincoln supposedly had these dreams that's, that often foretold the future, which is a whole kind of a cool thing that he had. Um in Ghost Number 21, uh, there was a story called The Shadow of Death, and Robert Todd Lincoln, Abraham's son, was actually at his father's deathbed when he died, but he was also the Secretary of War under James Garfield and was present when Garfield was shot and eventually died, so he was assassinated. He was also present at uh, the death of William McKinley, or, or very close by. McKinley had invited him to this Pan-American exposition, where McKinley ended up being assassinated. <laughs> so Lincoln was sort of on his way there. And after that, Lincoln apparently said, Robert Lincoln said, I'm not going anywhere near any presidents. I'm, I'm bad luck. Probably. So, and then, and then we, there was kind of a joke going around. There's a photo of him with another president. I don't remember who it was. It might have been Taft or something like that. And, and somebody made a comment on an online discussion group. I thought he wasn't going to go around anymore, presidents. And we're, the joke was, well, maybe he didn't like Taft. <laughs> maybe he was just going to show up. Or was Taft. I think it was Taft or Hoover. I can't remember which one it was. Um, Ghost number 112, the last issue of Ghosts, had a story called Let the Punishment Fit the Crime, which in a strange way, it wasn't intended that way, but it's almost the continuation of this story. It kind of goes after Booth shoots Lincoln. He's sort of in his escape and then kind of what happens to him and his fate after that time and how he get, meets his punishment and gets punished by the devil. Mm-hmm. The Unexpected, um, number 217, has a story called Deer Center. This one was just whacked out. It was by Sheldon Mayer, so you can imagine it, it could be goofy and funny. Um, Lincoln is cloned and brought to the year 2265. <laughs> Clone is set back in time to replace him in the assassination so they can bring the real Lincoln forward to the future to run for president of the galaxy. Um, and, then, and then as I wrote to you, then comes the wacky part. That's not even the wacky part yet. <laughs> And then I think the last one, or at least the last one that I found, um, was The House of Mystery number 51. It was in a story called The Second Death of Abraham Lincoln. There's this overworked actor who's kind of suffering, feigning spells, and all of a sudden he finds himself in the role of Abraham Lincoln during the assassination. And then it kind of, is it is it real or is it a hallucination or what is it? And we, I don't know if we ever really find out in the story. was That one was kind of odd, too. Mm. <laughs> but those are the ones that I was able to find sort of in, in the horror genre that had depictions of the Lincoln assassination in it. Yeah, well, you know, depending on how long this uh, this podcast lasts, maybe <laughs> I'll have to revisit some of these other ones. That clone future one, whew, that sounds intriguing. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, and you know, Sheldon Mayer drew it too, so it has that oh, sort wow. of golden agey, stylistically drawn uh, story too, which is sort of interesting in and of itself. <laughs> 
Well, let's go back. Let's backtrack a little bit and talk about the story that you just synopsized for us, the Crimson Claw. What do you think of this story? You know, I really like the story. It was very succinct as a four-page story, yeah, yeah. so it was very short. But the thing that I particularly liked, of course, because I, I, although I'm a big comics fan, this particular topic I look at kind of through a historical lens. And, there, you know, there are sort of these four action beats when his mother has the vision, his sister sees his claw hand while he's trick-or-treating, he visits the gypsy, and then the actual assassination of Lincoln. So it has sort of those four action beats. But three of those four action beats are actually based on the historical record. So that, I that found that crazy. really cool. That is I'm, crazy. You told me. And that was going to be my first question, sort of asking yeah. in jest, was I was going to say, okay, aside from the obvious conclusion of the story, what is the <laughs> historical basis for this? Or was any of this, like, actually – and you're like, some of it is? Yeah, can, okay, let me let – me, I'm going to put you on the spot, Ryan. Can you guess which one of those things – so there's three left. Which one is not in the historical record? Uh – I'm assuming the one when he was a baby with his mom is one of the ones that might have been documented. So I'm, I'm yes, leaning towards – so it's either the gypsy or the Halloween costume. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I used to know a lot about the history of Halloween in America, and particularly <laughs> in trick-or-treating. And I don't remember if it dated back as far as – eight. Uh, I'm going to guess uh, – I don't know. Would there have been documentation that he went and saw a gypsy at a carnival? I'll, I'll give you a hint. Yes, you are. You're correct. It's the Halloween one that's not in the historical okay. record. Halloween. And I kind of researched it because that was one of the things I was like, eh, I don't know, kind of like you. I was like, I've kind of looked into that before. But apparently trick or treating in the United States really started in the early 20th century. Yeah, so yeah. early 1900s. But it was sort of based on a lot of other things that went back way back to like Celtic Roman right, times. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But there wouldn't have been trick-or-treating and costume things. I think it was just sort of I, – I suspect Dorfman just wrote it to kind of bridge the gap between these ages and kind of bring it up to the time of the assassination. Okay, so, so then this is my big question. If you're saying that there was historical evidence that his mother had this claim to have seen his, his hand change like that, as did a fortune teller at a carnival, do these documents or does this evidence – predate the assassination or could this have been some sort of retroactive historical contamination you know what i will say was it the the historical record doesn't actually talk about the specifically about his hand turning into a claw okay but it does talk about him a mother's vision and then also attending the gypsy and that's a really good question about about whether it predates I'll kind of start out here first with the mother's vision. We'll kind of go in order here. Okay. So his sister Asia, John Wilkes Booth's sister Asia, who appears in this story, um, sort of the incorrect age, actually. She was only about three years older than him mm. in real life, but they were very close. And Asia wrote a book at, right after the assassination, but it was never released because she just didn't think it would be received particularly well after her brother had just assassinated the president of the United States. Go figure. Um, good, good marketing sense, Asia. Good job. So she she related all these things. It was called The Unlocked Book, a sister's uh, a sister's memoir or something like that it was called. And in this story in this in this book she relates these incidents and she had written a poem in 1854. So this well predated the assassination. She wrote this poem and it talked about her mother's vision. She says, "My mother had this vision when John was 6 months old," which would have actually placed it in in the beginning of the story it's at 1839, but it, that would have placed it in 1838, which that's a a very mild Sure. <laughs> historical yeah. discrepancy there. So I'm, I pulled out this little section of the poem um, because she talks about how she she had heard this, her mother's vision so many times she wrote a poem about it in 1854. So this is a couple stanzas from the poem. Tiny, innocent, white baby hand 
what force, what power is at your command? For evil or good, be slow or be sure, firm to resist, to pursue, to endure. My God, let me see what this hand shall do in the silent years we are tending to, in my hungering love. I implore to know on this ghostly night whether to labor for wrong or right, for or against thee, the flame upleapt like a wave of blood, an avenging arm crept into shape and country shone out in the flame, which fading resolved to her boy's own name. So basically it says <laughs> she had this vision of the flame where this hand crept up out of, which is the, the very first, first panel, panel we yeah. see in this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so I'm like, man, Dorfman okay. did his yeah. research, man. Dor- yeah, Dorfman or Tusco, whoever's idea this, this story was, had to have seen that poem. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I, I see, I feel like I, this, this story, this book was eventually published in 1938 after her heirs sort of, you know, kind of thought, ah, maybe it's time now, which I find it was interesting because it was also would have been the hundredth anniversary of her of John Wilkes Booth's birth. Huh. You know, again, yeah, yeah. marketing. I'm sure that had something to do with it. But that was one of the things that struck me right away. There was this vision of a flame claw hand. It just wasn't necessarily directly on the child. This, sure. His mother just had this vision of him doing something great. But, but like, even, I mean, the question posed right there at the beginning, you know, what deeds will this exactly. hand commit? What will, will command, like, good or evil? I mean, that is the question posed right in the beginning, and we get the answer four pages later. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, you know, Booth himself, and, and we'll talk about this in a little bit. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and go into the Gypsy Fortune thing, too. Mm-hmm. And then I'll kind of come back to that, because this idea of superstition and kind of what what he believed. So the second part was the gypsy fortune. And in in the drawings here, Booth looks like sort of an older man. He's got a full mustache and he kind of looks, I don't know, I'll just say older, like he's an adult for sure. I don't know if people realize John Wilkes Booth was only 26 years old when he assassinated President Lincoln. He was a kind of a young, idealistic guy. So this, this gypsy fortune thing actually occurred when he was about 13. And, and again, Asia relates this in the book, and she says that um, John Wilkes Booth at the time was attending a school called the Milton, the Milton School for Boys, which was in Sparks, Maryland. Um, the building in which that school is still exists, actually. It's a restaurant now. <laughs> Strange. Okay. Which I've, I've eaten in. <laughs> so, so if you want, again, if you want a little ghost story, you can probably go there and show up. That may give you something. But after a, they had put on a play at the school one day, and Asia was there, and John, she met John sort of after this, after this play, and she he pulled out this folded sheet of paper and he, he related to his sister how there had been English gypsy. It wasn't a carnival, but there were actually gypsies in the countryside in, the, in those early 1800s. Um, and there was a group of English gypsies camped out near this school. And he, out of curiosity, had wandered into this gypsy camp and had had his fortune told. So he pulled, he had this paper and he wrote down exactly what the gypsy had told him. So I'll, I'll read for you here what the fortune actually was. And, and this is what Booth told his sister. Ah, you've had a bad hand. The lines all crisscross. It's full enough of sorrow, full of trouble, trouble and plenty everywhere I look. You'll break hearts. There'll be nothing to you. You'll die young and leave many to mourn you, many to love you. But you'll be rich, generous, and free with your money. You're born under an unlucky star. You've got in your hand a thundering crowd of enemies, not one friend. You'll make a bad end and have plenty to love you afterwards. You'll have a fast life, short, but a grand one. Now, young sir, I've never seen a worse hand, and I wish I hadn't seen it. But every word I've told is true by the signs. You'd best turn a missionary or a priest and try to escape it. (laughs) That's what she told him. And then she told him he was very handsome, and if she was a younger woman, she would follow him anywhere. (laughs) 
Well, I've told after you tell someone they're going to be crazy, then you got to you got to sort of hit on them. Some withered old crone. I'm sure he was loving that. So so John John was very superstitious by nature. Hmm. So he actually took this to heart. Um, Asia related that he kept this paper for many many years and would often repeat what the gypsy told to him. Um, And at one time he he later remarked, the gypsy said I was to have a grand life, no matter how short. Then let it be grand. So he kind of it was sort of one of those weird things, sort of like in the Matrix when Neo goes to the Oracle and she says, oh, don't worry about that vase. And and he's like, what vase? He turns and knocks it over. Right, right. And she says, blow my, you know, if you want me to blow your mind, what if I'd never said anything about the vase? And I always think of that same thing here. So did did he just sort of live his life because he actually believed the prophecy? Yeah, the self-fulfilling prophecy. Or was it really a prophecy? Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, Which, which I just found really interesting, too. The whole thing about her prophecy and having to do with like how many admirers and how many like lovers mm-hmm. and everything like that, the people – I mean I know – I mean yeah, I had heard that he was young and fairly well-liked. But like does that play out afterwards? Like was there context for – I guess I, it's actually a question that I never really thought about. But was – after Booth died, was he – I would assume he would have been kind of a hero to the south and, and maybe like a martyr or something. Like was there anything to that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think in some respects he was. He had killed the tyrant, so to speak, of Abraham Lincoln, as many believed. I think that's when I he think shouted. He, yeah, when he shot. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I mean, he thought he was going to be hailed as a hero and get this great adulation, but it never really turned out that way because I think he 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 of course was a famous actor. He was he was considered by many at the time to be the handsomest man in America. And he was an actor. He was all about the stage. He he once said, I want fame, fame. So he thought he would gain great fame by doing this and protect his country, as he called it, being the South. I think there were probably people that loved him. But at the time, the war was pretty much over. This this happened after General Lee had surrendered his army. There were a couple armies in the field, but the Civil War was the end was sort of foregone conclusion. And I think a lot of the people in the South kind of realized that Lincoln would be very conciliatory toward them. He was kind of a soft touch with respect to that. Lincoln was. He wanted the war over, but he wasn't going to be overly – he wasn't going to overpenalize the South, if that makes any, any mm-hmm. sense. Be overly harsh on them. So there are many people in the South that believe that – at the time Lincoln was killed, it may have actually been a negative for the South. And, of course, we don't know how history would have played out had he survived. So there were many people that certainly hailed him as a hero, but there are many people that did not. As he was on the run, all the newspapers, even the, a lot of the ones in the South, were not hailing him as a hero. He, he couldn't understand that. Hmm. And he certainly did have plenty of lovers. <laughs> he left a lot of lovers to mourn him. When they found him in in his possession, it was like this book. They called it a diary. It was a pocketbook. And he had, of course, had pictures of four or five different women <laughs> with, him, <laughs> with him and all this stuff. And many others that he had been involved with that he did, was not carrying their pictures. Um, yeah. Okay. So then getting back to the story, I, I only just have a few other notes. Like, Forgetting the context and everything, the history aside, I do like the way the story is presented. I I think it's a really cool hook that we have these terrifying omens about this kid who will grow up to be a famous killer, if not one of the most famous killers. But we don't know that because we don't have his full name. So when that piece of information is dropped at the end, it's like, oh, wow. It's like it completely changes your your perspective because that crucial information, you didn't know what story you were being told. And I just think it's it's really well done. Again, just for being such a, a brief story, they pack a lot in, but there is really like you kind of pointed out like there is like four major set pieces, four major events basically dotting the four pages. And like you said, I mean, I think I think they did a good job for four pages 
it was very well condensed, but I don't think you lost anything in the story. I, don't, I didn't feel like there was any, anything I really felt like I was missing within how this story progressed either. Yeah, I think if you had done any more, they would have really had to flesh out more of the characters and everything like that. And Absolutely. Then, and then I don't know if the ending would have had the same payoff. I think it needs right. this sort of economy of panels and words just to have that effect. And it's not this is not a terrifying story. This is not a necessarily right. a suspenseful story. It, there is this sort of building dread and tension of what's going on with this, but I think it's also meant to be like one of those stories that's somewhat comical in its revelation at the end where it's like, yeah. "Oh, okay, so you kind of have that, that connection." Yeah. Um in terms of the art, George Tusca, he, I kind of think of him a lot of, in a lot of the same ways that I think of an artist like Don Heck. He's just a guy who was there forever. <laughs> and I think his best work wasn't in the superhero genre, but because the superhero yeah. genre has sort of dominated the medium, that, that's sort of where he had to find a work. But I, I think the art in this is really good. I think it's solid. Yeah. It's, again, it, he doesn't have to go into tremendous detail, but he gets the facial expressions and the fear. He draws this horrifying hand to great effect i i think the claw looks great so yeah and i think my favorite rendition of the claw was when it was coming out of the fire in the very first mm-hmm. panel and i love that how it's holding that quill as if it's writing sort of that yes. little intro into the story i, I just love that idea yeah, me too. That first and, panel is... And like you with Tusca, Tusca was always just sort of a guy... I always think of artists as you and, and a lot of your guests have, I'm sure, a lot better art or eye for the art than I do. Tusca's always sort of... I always think of artists as, oh, I either really love them or I really don't like them. And Tusca's somewhere in between there. He, yeah. He's just there. He's a very serviceable artist. And the story, I just thought he did a great job. I mean, he, I think he conveyed sort of that Victorian age pretty nicely without having to do a huge amount of detail, like you said, but where detail was required, he did a good job with it, too. Yeah. Do you feel like Cardi had something to do with some of those facial expressions? I, there's several panels that I can just see. Nick Cardi sort of has that way of drawing eyes, nose, mouth that I, that I see, like, in those old Wonder Girl in the Teen Titans. Yeah. And there's a couple panels that I really feel like on the second page, like the fourth panel there, just the eyes, nose, mouth, and then the same thing on, like, the fifth panel on the third page. Mm-hmm. I just That just looks like Nick Cardi to me. You know, I I bet I I can definitely see it now that you point out. I didn't even think about it, but I do see it. And I think you're probably right. He may have had somewhat more of a heavier hand in this one, but uh, yeah, and maybe maybe that's that's why it works so much better. There was one thing about the art, and this is not a complaint. It was just something that I noticed because it seemed a little odd. I'm surprised that in the final panel where we actually see Booth pulling the trigger and we see mm-hmm. his hand holding the gun, I was surprised that just as in a, a sort of artistic flourish, the hand looks like a normal human hand instead of the claw. I thought the exact same thing. I, <laughs> I, I, I had that exact same note here. Yeah, I, it, it, just, just, it would have seemed like it was sort of would have wrapped it up into mm-hmm, a package. Mm-hmm. And maybe... I don't know. Maybe if there was a, anything to the story afterwards, it would have been. Maybe they just thought, like, no, like the claw was just meant to be like an image, an omen. But that's not. Maybe they didn't want to confuse the issue as if he actually did have some sort of physical yeah. deformity, like his hand changed, and it was. It yeah. really was just supposed to be this portentous kind of vision yeah. that people had. But I don't think it would have mattered really either way. I think it is fine, but uh, yeah. it was just something that I noticed. I was like, I'm surprised they didn't do that. Yeah, but I, but you know, now that I think, I th- I was surprised too. But then after you said, oh, maybe it was meant to be just more of an omen. So now they're leading in without the hand. Yeah, that makes sense too, I guess, when you when you look at it that way. He doesn't need to be an omen anymore because he's actually doing the deed. <laughs> yeah. True. <laughs> That's all the notes that I really have for the story itself. Did you have anything else to say about the Crimson Claw? 
the, the only other thing I had was this kind of ties back to the history again was I, I liked and this is goes back to something I like where it talks about this idea of fate or mm. portent or omen and Lincoln himself was sort of a guy who was sort of a fatalistic guy so I just wanted to read a couple quotes that Lincoln had read just to kind of put it in the mood of seems like in the historical record it seemed like they were on this collision course both of them were sort of fated to meet in this place so it said uh, Lincoln here at one time had said I long ago made up my mind that if anybody wants to kill me he will do it if I wore a shirt of mail and kept myself surrounded by a bodyguard it would all be the same there are a thousand ways of getting at a man if it is desired that he should be killed Lincoln had said that in 1863 And then he talks about, at a later time, too, he talks about if there was such a plot, meaning an assassination, and they wanted to get at me, no vigilance could keep them out. We are so mixed up in our affairs that no matter what the system established, a conspiracy to assassinate, if such there were, could easily obtain a pass to see me for any one or more of its instruments. So Lincoln sort of had this idea, too, that whatever was going to happen to him was a matter of fate. Hmm. I don't think I ever knew really that part about his character, but that's interesting. Yeah, he he was real lax about security. He didn't really believe in that. And that's just kind of what he thought. If someone's going to kill me, they'll kill me. But he also did not believe, as he said, that assassination was in the American spirit or the American character. He just didn't believe anyone would do that. (laughs) Okay, but that brings us us back to the idea of self-fulfilling prophecy and the nation, you know, knocking into the vase with your shoulder. Had he cared about security a little bit more, could he have avoided that? Maybe Booth wouldn't have gotten to him. Exactly. <laughs> Very oh man, man, that's oh you just blew my mind with that little fact. Oh. I love it. <laughs> All right, well, uh, this you know, is as, as kind of like we say. Sometimes history is just as interesting as the fiction. Sometimes more that, so. Yeah. That the fiction draws from you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, this is usually the question that I lead off the episodes with whenever I have a new <laughs> guest, but uh, since we kind of skipped over it, besides these, you know, stories involving Lincoln or his ghost or in some form comics, like what is what is your history with comic books in general, with horror comics or the horror genre? Are you a fan, or is it, was it really sort of your connection to Lincoln that led you into this? I'll start kind of with my comic book history. I I can't remember who it was that was one of your guests not long ago, and I said I cannot remember a time when I did not like know who Superman was. I, I have no idea. I know that by the time I was five years old, I already had comic books and was reading them. I watched the Super Friends. That's just sort of been an ever-present thing in my life has been the comic books. As far as horror history, I think probably for me it started with the Universal Studios Monsters. Again, I remember about that same age, five, six years old, um, when I just started into kindergarten. I went to the school library and got these books that were sort of – they were books about the old Universal movies. So The Wolfman, The Mummy, Frankenstein, those things. And I love those. And as far as horror in the comics, I know exactly when that was. And I, I think I, I actually made a post about that on, on one of the comment sections in one of the earlier podcasts. It was I watched an episode of Video Comics yes. on Nickelodeon that had Swamp Thing in it. And that just that just blew me away to hear voices and how they kind of move the pictures. And I just love that. And so then I, it was sort of my my window in was through Swamp Thing. Um, I really in the mid 80s when I really started collecting comics seriously, the superpowers toy line mm-hmm. kind of got me really interested. And then I picked up the Who's Who comics and got loving those and the Crisis on Infinite Earths comics and some of the stuff that was going on with Spider-Man in the black costume at that time sort of got me into the comics again. And then I started – it wasn't long after that I started reading Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run, which I absolutely love, still love to this day. But that was sort of the extent of my horror comic stuff until I started coming to these anthology. I just never had really picked them up. 
before. I, I don't I don't exactly know why. But then in reading these, now of course I'm reading the stories that I got these for. I'm reading the other stories and I'm finding really interesting. And honestly, this podcast has has been fantastic because it sort of opened a door for me into a whole nother genre of comics that I really hadn't attended to a bunch. So I've been picking up some older House of Mystery, House of Secrets that I found at my LCS that are on the dollar bin. So I'm like, I'm grabbing these things now and I'm reading them and like, boy, these are some really cool stories in here. I love like the Twilight Zone too. Twilight Zone, I love, and I love these anthology things because they're sort of in that in that light too. Mm-hmm. Oh, excellent! That's that's what I so wanted could, to hear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kudos to you, man. You've got me reading stuff that I <laughs> I hadn't really thought of reading extensively before. That's good. That's what I want to hear. That makes it all of all a success. <laughs> so. Well, Scott, I, this was great. I'm I'm really glad that you came to me with this idea. I liked re- going back and reading this story again and all of the connections in the historical context. Uh, once once you kind of came to me with it, I like I said at the beginning, I latched onto this. I was like, whew, this, this would be a really interesting episode. Um, and I loved all of the history and all the knowledge that you brought to this topic. Yeah. So thank you very much. Great, thank was you. there anything else that you want to say before you go, just sort of on the subject of Lincoln, the assassination or the story or any big picture stuff that you wanted to mention? Uh, not really. I, I mean, I, I want to tell you, first of all, I really love all your podcasts. I love everything on the Fire and Water Network. Over the last couple of years, I've really listened to a lot of podcasters. And, you know, I think you're one of the one of the best. And it's it's really an honor to be on your show. And I, I think I can't even I can't remember. I may have written that in my initial email to you. I've been looking at doing a podcast for about three years, a non-comic book related one. And I've just kind of been, it's kind of been circling and circling. I just, with time and everything else. So hopefully someday, uh, maybe you'll hear me out there with my own podcast. We'll see how that goes. And um, like I said, if anyone um, has any interest in the assassination, anything like that, um, you can, you can get a hold of me, Ryan. I'm happy if you want to give anyone who emails to you or emails the show, my email address, if they want to learn more about the history of some of this stuff, I'm more than happy to share my thoughts, just some, some other books, if they want to read, if they have any interest in that stuff. Um, one of the easy places to go look at a friend of mine by the name of Dave Taylor manages a website called, uh, boothiebarn.com, B-O-O-T-H-I-E-B-A-R-N.com. He does a great job of having a lot of stuff, but he writes a blog. Mm-hmm. It's basically a blog and it's about the assassination and Booth family history and lot. So there's just a lot of easy, cool stuff to read on there. And then another website that I belong to is called uh, the Lincoln Discussion Symposium. So for those that want to learn more about President Lincoln, you can go on there and join in discussions or just kind of read. And there's more stuff than you could ever imagine um, <laughs> on those websites that you'd probably drown and be, God, how can people get this detail-oriented about this stuff? Who cares? <laughs> hey, but that's what's good. So you can pick out what you want. <laughs> the people listening to this are comic book fans. They know know from that type of minutiae and that type of obsession. (laughs) No, you are not alone in that. No, no, absolutely. And and of course, I live in both those worlds. I'm an obsessive history lover. I'm an obsessive comic book lover. So I I feel right at home. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Scott, one more time. Thank you very much for being on this episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. It was great to talk to you. Absolutely. My absolute pleasure, Ryan. Thanks a bunch.
The last episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour, where Ben Avery and I talked about Swamp Thing issues 1 and 2, received Twitter favorites and retweets from 100 underscore issues, Bill Bear, Cash Flag, a.k.a. Al, Coffee and Comics, Comic Social Club, Film and Water Podcast, Hung Way Low, Joe Crawford, Cord Industries, Laurel at Mountain Flower 1, Longbox Crusade, Mario at Luther Lang, Old Man Bruce, Parley Pod Comics, Relatively Geeky, Rolled Spine Podcast, Sean Hagerty, Slangword Resists, and Treasury Comics. I'm sure there were probably more than that, but I couldn't find the Twitter post from the Fire and Water Network, so anyway, if I failed to mention your name, I apologize. Over on Facebook, though, likes and shares for the last two episodes came from Adam Stabelli, AF Roy G, Al Sedano, Alan Mason, Billy Lacasse, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics, Corey Hodgden, David Foster, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Gordon Bradshaw, H. Daniel Reibold, Harar Long Promateri, James Johnson, Jeffrey Anderson, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Joe Crawford, Keith Williams, Luke Dobb, Martin Gray, Matthew Parmenter, Max Romero, Michael Schumann, Michael Wagner, Mike Gillis, Nathaniel Wayne, Pat Sampson, Rob Kelly, Scott Cage, The Irredeemable Shag, Sean Merrick, Sean Strawbridge, Siskoid, Stephen Lum, Terry O'Malley, Tim Wallace, Van Z, and Zoom Yukonori. Now moving on to the website comments for episode 6, where Luke Dobb and I covered the short story No Strings Attached. That was also the episode that I announced my wife is pregnant, with like a child or something. Uh, A lot of the comments refer to that, and as always, you can find these comments and leave your own at the Fire and Water Podcast Network, fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from Scott X, who you just heard me talk to a minute ago. Scott said, I was interested to hear Luke's question about whether Evil Toys was some sort of a trope at the time. It seems like it might have been. Although it was before my time, I know that there were several episodes of The Twilight Zone from the 1960s that certainly had Evil Toys. And then Scott listed a couple of specific Twilight Zone episodes on the subject. You can check out his comment to see the exact titles and synopses for those episodes. Uh, Then Scott said, As an aside, I was interested to hear the name of the town in this story was Pottersville. This was the same name as the rough-around-the-edges town, named after the nasty Mr. Potter, that was the less-than-idyllic version of Bedford Falls in the reality where George Bailey never existed from the movie It's a Wonderful Life. I wonder if that was a nod to the movie. Uh, I have no idea, but Siskoid from here on the Fire and Water Network said it's totally an homage to It's a Wonderful Life. I like to think this story happens in that dark timeline. And he supported that theory by adding, hey, the Wonderverse has angels, so praying for puppet horror is totally possible. I like it. You sort of convinced me there, Siskoid. Chris Franklin from also here on the network said, Still listening, but I had to go ahead and comment on PJ's tale. That was a fine short story, Mr. Daly. I could just see it as drawn by Jim Aparo, Bernie Wrightson, or another DC stalwart. I could even visualize the panel breakdowns. Masterful job. Thanks very much, Chris, but you don't have to flatter me that much because you're already my partner on Nightcast. Uh, Chris goes on, Bill Drought is an artist who somehow escaped my radar until recent years as well. I think I first discovered him in scans Rob posted on his Phantom Stranger blog, and in the first Teen Titans Showcase Presents volume. He drew the story that introduced the first Starfire, later Red Star. His work has a very modern aesthetic, not unlike Rodolfo DiMaggio or Cliff Chang in some ways. I really like it. And Chris added, Of course, I've congratulated you elsewhere, but I want to welcome you and Angela to the wonderful world of parenthood once more. I think this podcast should continue as It's Midnight, the Feeding Hour. You'll be shambling around zombie-like through the darkened quarters of your home, searching, searching for the bottle warmer. Uh, I love that idea. Midnight, the Feeding Hour. 
And the best part is I won't even have to worry about my brother's music to score the episodes. I can just use the natural baby crying in the background. Love it. Uh, Rob Kelly from this network said, Great episode, Ryan, though with Luke Dobb as a guest, I expected no less. Luke talking about his brief desire to be a puppeteer called to mind that scene from Being John Malkovich of John Cusack desperately searching the want ads for a job, but only looking for a job listed as puppeteers. Uh, Rob goes on, Scott X comments on this above, but yes, the whole idea of evil puppets goes way back. Even before the Twilight Zone episodes, he mentions, there's a segment in the 1945 horror anthology Dead of Night that is about a ventriloquist whose puppet has a life of its own. It's by far the scariest story of the lot, with a final scene that is a whopper. Uh, Wild Hill Terry said he enjoyed my discussion with Luke Dobb on No Strings Attached, though he didn't care so much for my PJ Frightful prologue. He then recommended a baby book called Happiest Baby on the Block, uh, and I did actually pick up that book, so thank you very much for that suggestion, Terry. Uh, Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Thanks for another fine listen. I really wish this were a weekly show, especially with the random horror stories. They are my favorites in the rotation. Probably not the time to be asking. Yeah, I can't do the show weekly, Martin. I am sad to say it'll probably go monthly before too long. Uh, However, what I can tell you is, once Night Force and the first couple issues of Swamp Thing are wrapped up, the focus will shift mostly to the random horror stories in the future. Uh, Martin went on to say, Well done, Scott X, on noting the Pottersville reference. Is it too much of a stretch to like the kids' pleas for something to happen to Lucas Stone to the prayers of the Bedford Falls residents for George Bailey? Uh, Siskoid seems to think there's a connection there, so you never know. Uh, Martin says, I'm really impressed with your original tale this time, Ryan. The pacing was superb, the words chosen just right. I'd rather like a sequel, with the further adventures of Jeremy and Gammy. Maybe leave Billy behind, though. Jeremy really is getting too old for that silly stuff. (laughs) Very nice, very nice. Uh, Dr. Ainge from the Supergirl blog said, The comic story reminded me of the little-known horror movie Dead Silence, directed by James Wan. Lots of marionettes, killer dolls, and even people becoming puppets. Now, I actually saw that movie last year, I think. I don't remember if I thought it was scary or stupid, but it was one or the other. Don't know what that says about me or about the movie. Uh, anyway, Ange added, glad to hear the podcast isn't disappearing completely and willing to pinch in if when I am needed. Good to know. If called, you will serve. That is always good to hear. Uh, Max Ramiro from It's Plastic Man applauded me for the episode, for the wonderfully creepy original story, and of course, the great news of your soon-to-be bigger family. Thank you. Brian Linton said, I am not a big fan of the horror genre because, unlike Luke, I never outgrew my fear of things that go bump in the night. But I have been enjoying this podcast and the insightful discussions that you and your guests bring to each episode. You'll just have to forgive me if I skip any zombie-themed episodes. You know, Brian, I'm not a big zombie fan myself, so probably don't have much to worry about. I doubt I'm going to do a lot of zombie-heavy episodes. Leslie Triggs said, Got to say, the best opening story with PJ. Loved the story. Best one to date. Can't wait to see you top it. Thank you very much for that. Uh, By the way, congrats on becoming a father. Just remember to be nice to your child's stuffed animal. Of course, of course I will. Actually, I will be good to my boy's stuffed animals. The real trick is going to be keeping the dogs from tearing them to shreds because we've gotten stuffed toys for my youngest dog and she guts them within hours. So, yeah, that'll take some careful navigation to make sure that she doesn't destroy all the kids' toys. Uh, Bradley Null said, I'm only a month behind. Great show. Well, that was a month ago, so maybe Bradley is caught up by now. 
Uh, and finally, we got a comment from the Irredeemable Shag who said, Wow, incredible episode. That opening PJ Frightful story was scary as hell. As a father who has struggled with his stepson growing up and moving towards adulthood, this was a terrifying tale of what could happen in an out-of-control situation. Nightmare fuel. Now, look, cards on the table, being completely honest here, this total coincidence, I did not realize when I wrote that story about this horrible vengeance coming down on an abusive father that it would be on the same episode where I announced I was going to have a child of my own. I swear that was not planned, but yeah, there it goes. Uh, Shag goes on, always great to hear Luke on an episode, and his puppeteer background made this a perfect fit. Yes, it is. That's why I picked him. Uh, As I've told you privately, I'm thrilled for you and your wife to bring a spawn into this horrible world. Uncle Shag couldn't be more excited. I know he is. Uh, Thank you once more to Shag, to everyone who left a comment, to everyone who congratulated me on procreating. All of the more for those of you who supported the show on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for leaving iTunes reviews. Thank you for leaving comments on the website. It's always, always appreciated. I love you guys. On the next episode, Paul Hicks is back, and the two of us are going to review the first four issues of Night Force. Uh, And just to tide you over, I'll give you a little bit of a secret about this series. In issue two, there's... Help... Ah, never mind. I guess you'll just have to wait for the episode. Talk to you in two weeks. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.